California is an agricultural powerhouse. In fact, according to the USDA, the Golden State accounts for nearly 11% of the nation's total crop and livestock production. So for many state residents, large-scale agricultural production isn't just a point of distinction for California, it's an entrenched way of life, meaning it's just the way things are and seemingly always will be. But some folks working in food systems change across the state remind us that this entrenched mindset is problematic. In fact, for them, large-scale agriculture isn't the cure-all for expanding food pathways that developers and boosters have made it out to be since the late 19th century. In other words, they point out that industrial agriculture and the capitalist commodification of our food has been the biggest barrier that we're having to overcome here. And it's been going on for so long and it has been so profitable for the state that thinking outside of industrial agriculture, people just have a very hard time doing that. And they have also swallowed the myths of industrial agriculture, that it feeds the world, that it's the only way to feed everybody in the world. And that's just not true. So in this episode, we'll examine how one activist organization in the state is working to support food sovereignty systems that exist beyond capitalism by embracing the concept and the practice of land back. I'm Caroline Collins, and this is the Calag Roots podcast. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming to shed light on current issues in agriculture. This is the second episode in a multi-part series which focuses on the land back movement. This series is part of a new interview format we're calling The Well. Think of The Well as an audio version of a gathering place like a barbershop, a kitchen table, a front porch, a watering hole, or a well, where each episode we have an in-depth conversation with the scholars, artists, organizers, growers, and community members who are making an impact on how we view and interact with the natural world in California. Basically, we're talking to dope people who are doing dope things. In our first well conversation, we spoke with Dr. Brittany Arona, Assistant Professor of American Indian Studies at San Diego State University, who is Hoopa Hoopa Valley Tribe. That discussion dove into the long history of Native resistance to colonial efforts that lie at the heart of what's recently been called land back by activists and organizers. This second episode of the series now turns to how ally organizations across the state can work to support land back efforts. This episode features my conversation with Nicole Salaya, co-executive director at Food Link for Tulare County, who recently joined me by Zoom from her home. For 40 years, Food Link has stood by their unwavering belief that food is a basic human right. Every year, they distribute millions of healthy meals, and they're also on the forefront of new approaches to ending hunger and poverty through nutrition education and food system change. Part of that system change work sits at the intersections of health, community resilience, and the land back movement. It's work that Nicole Salaya reminds us is rooted in relational frameworks. So we asked her to talk to us about herself, what led her to her work, and those rich community partnerships Food Link fosters as a model for what's possible. Here's our conversation. Hey, Nicole, do you mind introducing yourself just a bit about your background and, and what led you to the kind of work that you do right now? 
Sure. Yeah. So um, my name is Nicole Salaya. I'm co-executive director at Foodlink for Tulare County. And Foodlink is a progressive food bank. And the reason that I joined that nonprofit to begin with was because it does have food systems work built into its mission. So I knew that that was something that um, that I had been working towards for a long time. Back in 2007, while I was living in Washington state, I took a permaculture course. And so I got certified in permaculture and that very much shifted my mindset and my framework for what was happening here in the Central Valley. I've lived in the Central Valley most of my life, but I'm originally from Los Angeles, but when I was living here, you know, knowing and coming from a, a family of farm workers, knowing the injustice in our food systems and the exploitation, like I knew I had to come back to the Central Valley and do the work here. And so uh, before that, I had been an educator for 20 years, um, teaching all levels and um, and also organizing within the community around many, many different um, social justice um, arenas, immigration. Um, farm worker rights, uh, LGBTQ issues. So I've just, uh, I've just been working in the community for a long time. And, uh, but I knew that food sovereignty and land back efforts have been like very near and dear to my heart. So now working with Foodlink, our food systems work has just very much exploded, especially here since COVID began. We're seeing a big wave of folks moving towards food sovereignty, um, food justice, and land back efforts. So it's been very, very exciting, very encouraging, but also kind of scary just to see how much um, how much the work is is moving forward. And so we're trying to, to move that work forward, but do so sustainably and ethically and responsibly and in uh, community with our folks. You're mentioning all of this background that you carried with you and life experience that you carried with you into your your position. So in terms of roots to the area and your background in education and being interested in, in food systems, how have you seen that distinct background at work in the type of work that you're doing right now? It's been many, many years of my family. Um, you know, like I said, I come from a family of farm workers. My dad is from Bakersfield and my mom's family is um, from LA, but also indigenous to the Southern Arizona area. And so, you know, my, my maternal grandparents worked very, very hard um, throughout their lives and were able to, to create some generational wealth for our family. Um, my grandfather was a contractor, one of the first Latino contractors in, um, in California to get a federal contract. And so he started building military bases and federal buildings. And so coming from that, he always taught me about work ethic and about how to navigate uh, being a person of color. And so, you know, I take a lot of that history from him as well as my dad and his farm worker roots. And so that very much informed my work both here um, in the food justice and food sovereignty efforts, but also like in my educational efforts, knowing the oppression that my dad faced, um, you know, being a person of color in the education system. And then also myself, you know, um, experiencing a lot of racism, going to school here in the Central Valley in my youth and, and really just not wanting to come back to it, but knowing also that it was necessary um, as a person of color and leadership to come back and, and work with my community and work with the folks that I knew needed as much, as much of a voice and as much advocacy as possible. And so 
yeah, that um, those roots in my family are are very strong, very deep, and um, you know we are all also um, very connected to the land here. Like my grandparents uh, bought land here in the Central Valley homes here in the Central Valley when I was very young. So I've grown up here my entire life and um, I'm just have a very deep love for the land and the people here. Yeah, so I knew I had to come back after I got my permaculture design certification. So now that you're back and you're working in these various communities, can you tell us a bit more about your organization and, and who do y'all partner with? Who are you working with and for? Yeah, so Foodlink has been around for 40 years. Um, it started with, you know, just a few hippies giving away food out of their garage. And um, so since then, Foodlink has been serving all of Tulare County um, for the past 40 years and providing emergency food resources throughout the county. And it's a very large county geographically and has lots of very small rural towns that are um, that uh, experience food insecurity. And so um, we're lucky that we've been able to build in the trust and the respect for our communities within our work. And so we're able to work with these very rural populations with, um, with farm workers, with uh, all of the different communities of color around here, very diverse communities of color. And so we've been building that trust for them for, for a long time. And we take the framework of community organizing. So we are here to supply the, the communities with what they tell us they need. And we listen and we develop relationships with them in order to be able to serve their needs. And so that has been a very, very important piece of the food systems work that we do. Um, and so not only do we provide the resources to about 30 to 40 different pantries throughout the month, as well as schools, other community organizations and partners, uh, for a total of about 70 partners that we work with every month, we, we um, supply food to about 15,000 households a week. And, you know, of course, the pandemic has just exacerbated everything. And, you know, our numbers have gone up about 40% as far as the, the food emergency resources that we provide. But like I said, the food systems work has also taken off quite a bit throughout this time. Um, and folks are seeing the importance of, um, of growing their own food and of having a localized food system that won't break down um, in the middle of a pandemic like this and leave folks uh, without food. And, um, and so we've also developed relationships with a few other local organizations who are working towards agroecology and permaculture solutions for industrial agriculture. So, you know, we've pushed and pushed and pushed for so many years against all of the detrimental effects of industrial agriculture, but um, not too many people have been working towards the systems that they want to replace that, um, that food system. And so that's what we're working with, with our agroecology partners and um, and other local organizations to actually create the food system that we want to see in place of industrial agriculture. And so Foodlink has just been very, very fortunate to have that relationship with all of these, these different organizations. And um, yeah, the work is, is moving forward um, very quickly and resources are starting to come in and we're just, we're just so happy to be able to, um, to work with our communities towards, um, towards a localized and sovereign food system that functions outside of industrial agriculture and outside of capitalism. Mm. I mean, you're talking about systems change and 
sovereign ideas and, and peoples really leads me to, you know, our conversation in this particular theme of, of the interview series, which is land back, you know, what's your definition or, or food links definition of a land back movement? And what do these movements mean for everyday people? You know, for, for food link and the work that we do, we know that, that food systems and health and community resilience, it's all connected to each other. And so we know that siloing our work is not helpful and is not healthy. And so we, we are working directly with local tribes to get them land back. And for us, it means just putting the land back into the hands of the folks who have stewarded it and cared for it for thousands of years. Um, the wisdom and the relationships that our local indigenous tribes have with the land you know, is a resource that that is just abundantly there for us and is available to help us create healing and um, and abundance and connection and health in a way that um, that industrial agriculture that capitalism teaches us, um, you know, must be commodified. Mm -hmm. And so for us, land back means getting that land back into the hands of those folks, but also thinking about um, connections and systems outside of capitalism. And, um, you know, it is very much also about right livelihood and about how we are sustaining ourselves economically and, um, you know, our health and our communities and our families in a way that is, um, that is aligned with our values and that is aligned with all of the, the values that that land stewardship can teach us. So when we're connected with, with land, when folks are stewarding that land and have that relationship with the land, the mutuality and the care and the abundance is, is there. Nature, nature supplies us with everything that we need. And when we have that right relationship with it, we know that communities are resilient, they're healthy, um, and it's a matter of survival. It's a matter of remembering where we come from. And so uh, for Foodlink, we are here to um, facilitate that, to help provide the resources and the care to the local indigenous tribes to, to get that land back into their, into their hands and back into their care. Um, because they're the ones that know what they're doing and, and we should be taking, taking notes from them and taking, uh, taking leadership from them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you all are are entering into a generations old practice, right, and, and knowledge systems. And when you're doing this kind of work and thinking through this paradigm of land back, are there particular histories of the movement that you're thinking of? Are there underrecognized folks or voices that we should all be thinking about and uplifting who've, who've been central to land back movements? And that can be, you know, artists or activists or even some of the the local folks that you're you're working with arm in arm yeah i mean most definitely we try like i said we try to keep everything very local we're, we're taking our teachings from you know a much more national and global um, framework you know but when it comes to our work we're here to listen to the folks that are that are local and here um in tulare county um fresno county kings county and kern you know that's this is all yokut territory um which is just a, a kind of a blanket name for people, right? That's what Yilkut means. And so there are so many different uh, local groups around here that aren't federally recognized, but are still holding the culture and the knowledge and the traditions of this land. And so for us, it's about learning from them. It's about uplifting their voices. Um, so 
you know, the Thule tribe is one of the larger tribes around here close to, to where I live and they are federally recognized. And so we are, um, we are hoping to work a little bit more closely with them, but, but our, our closest work has been with the unrecognized tribes here. The Wachumni tribe um, is one of our direct partners that we're working with, with our agroecology group. And, um, you know, the family, the Franco family is the matriarchal family there, as well as uh, Marie Wilcox, who just passed away. Um, she was a local Wachumni leader, um, and she was a language saver. She held the Wachumni language and uh, created a dictionary, basically, of the Wachumni language that was that was dying. And so she's helping, she's helped to carry on that tradition and the culture of her um, of her local tribe. And, you know, like I said, there's just so many you know, different folks around here who have the knowledge and the wisdom that we're learning from. And so we want to make sure that we're uplifting them. You know, we're, we're all here to hear from the national voices of, um, of Indigenous leaders, um, but we're also really deeply rooted in bringing forth the stories and the wisdom from the local folks here who can remember the stories of the rivers and the forests and the land here and who can remind us what that relationship can mean for us again. And so I, I really want to uplift the Wachumni tribe around here, um, as well as the Yalumni, who is a little bit northern, north of us. Um, and then, of course, there are the, the Tachi folks, the Chukchansi folks. Um, there's just so many uh, wonderful leaders here in the Central Valley. Um, who aren't getting that same platform as the more um, as the more national tribal leaders, um, but it's all connected, and everybody is um, is is here to learn from each other. And so I'm I'm really happy to have those folks in my life. Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear more about what that actually looks like on the ground. Then Just having those relationships and learning those lessons and following their guidelines and, and principles. How does that look when you're actually going about doing your everyday work and trying to mobilize the programs that Food Links brings to local peoples? How do you then also work through this framework of, of land back while you're uh, working within Food Links? Um, so, like I said, we're very lucky that we're, you know, a, a longstanding and trusted community organization. And so when we go into communities to provide, you know, the resources that they need, we're also there to listen. And so we will bring in our, our food systems folks into, um, into homes, into communities, um, and to other organizations to just listen. And that's the very, very first step always is to listen and to let their stories be told in the ways that, that they need to tell them. And so um, when we're working with communities and we're speaking with our local tribal folks about land back, it is again about what, what do you need? What can we do for you? Like, how can we hold space for you in, you know, some very white lead spaces? How can we talk to funders a little bit differently in order to bring your stories to the forefront? And so that's kind of how we're working with them is to make sure that that we're listening and that we're providing whatever resources, spaces that they need in order to to speak their truths. And as far as like land back around here, you know, we're still working. Like I said, we work very closely with the Wachumni tribe because in the Visalia area where we work primarily, that's that is their ancestral land. And so part of that also is providing some mediation between between the tribe and other folks who might be holding that land and might be 
uh, open to a land back effort. And so a lot of it is making sure to reduce trauma and to facilitate and mediate in a way with them that is, um, that is healthy and that's not creating more trauma, but that's also calling in you know, colonizers and landholders, you know, who might have some allyship that they can offer. Uh, it's, it's difficult around here in, especially in Tulare County, it is a very conservative county, you know, here in the Central Valley, it just in general is very conservative. And so when we say land back, almost immediately, like hackles go up, you know, and um, we want it to feel more of like a relationship building type of exercise as opposed to, you know, a, a transactional where if somebody's giving, somebody's losing, giving and taking, giving and taking. And that's not, that's not the framework that we want to use. It's a relationship building effort in which we can speak with each other respectfully and in a way that does recognize the trauma that has been perpetrated against our indigenous folks, but also moving towards healing and moving towards it in a way that brings all of our community together because Land Back is a community healing effort. It's not just for our indigenous folks. It's a matter of survival for all of us, especially right now that climate change is, is just moving so rapidly and the effects of it are being felt so hard around here. It is a matter of survival and necessity that we get the land back into the hands of the folks who can care for it and basically save all of us from this, you know, this situation that we've, that we've created. And so for us, it's always about relationship building. Um, like I said, the framework of community organizing dictates that we do move with care and with our ears wide open to hear whatever it is that, that is necessary and how we can support. You know, you talking about um, moving towards a more relational framework as opposed to one that's transactional. I was going to ask you about what you thought were some prominent misconceptions about land back. And, and do you think that's one that is a, a prominent misconception that needs to be dismantled? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, capitalism has very much ingrained in us that transactional nature of giving and taking of, you know, of monetary currency of of profit being over people and being like the most important thing. And so we're slowly trying to shift that framework and that mindset into being one of relationship building and one of right livelihood in which we can feel connected to each other in a way that goes beyond capitalism and that goes beyond um, profit. And I think that when we talk about land back, especially with uh, more conservative folks around here, we're, we're trying to do so in a way that calls them in and reminds them that there is another way of doing things that, you know, they are indigenous to somewhere, their families, they're indigenous to somewhere. And I, we're asking them to remember where their indigenous roots are as well and where their healing and their connection to land can be a part of the land back effort here in, um, in the Central Valley. And so there is that misconception that, oh, if, if they're, you know, give and take, give and take the haves and the have nots, and that it's not a zero sum effort. Like that's the thing that we want people to understand is that land back is for everybody and that everybody benefits when the land is stewarded in a way that's relational and it provides connection and it provides, you know, that, that community that we've kind of lost, you know, we go about our day and we work and we work and we come home and there's no connections to our communities anymore. And, and we are social beings, you know, humans are social animals that, that need that connection and 
you know, it's, it's a matter of survival for us mentally, physically, spiritually, and that, that capitalism is not the end all be all, that it's not the only way of doing things, that there are other ways of us living that are healthier and much more connected than what capitalism has taught us. You know, when you're speaking about things like healing and, and spiritual well-being, at the same time that we're thinking through trying to explain to folks whose hackles might be raised about, you know, the relational aspects of land back, how do you have attention towards perhaps trying to dismantle some of those misconceptions while at the same time not wanting to re-traumatize folks who have endured ongoing trauma and trying to explain the ethos of something like land back. At, are there times where you pick and choose battles or when you choose that you've, you've said enough and you're not going to say more? Yeah, it, it is a tightrope to walk. It's, it's difficult to balance. Um, and yeah, we do. We do pick and choose the, the folks that we work with. You know, there are, st- there are some obvious uh, situations where, you know, any mention of land back is, is never going to be met with any type of openness. And so we don't uh, waste our time in those, um, in those efforts. But we do seek out allies um, and folks who are looking to do, to do better, right? To have a right livelihood and be in relationship with their land and with the folks around here. And so those are the people that we seek out, the organizations, or even sometimes individuals, landholders who, who are just coming to us and saying, you know, I have this land and it's available. What can you do with it? And you know, other organizations that might be holding land and not have the capacity to uh, to do that work in the community, but who are ready to give that land over to the folks that, that can do the work. And so it, it is a balancing act. And it is, like I said, that's what we're trying to, to do is also provide kind of a buffer between those folks who are holding the land and, you know, the local indigenous tribes and um, provide some facilitation and some mediation so that if there is um, any kind of trauma that we need to work through or any conflict that, that we can do so um, and, and do so with the blessing of, you know, the folks that we're representing so that they are not feeling re-traumatized as well. But again, you know, we are, FoodLink is also a, an organization that is led by women of color. And so we also have to have our boundaries as well to make sure that we're not re-traumatizing ourselves. And so, yeah, it is, um, especially like around here, like I said, we are very selective with the people that we work with. Yeah, I can imagine so. And as we're, you know, kind of drawing to the, the close of this brief discussion, you know, we're talking about this big, huge movement that has all of these different moving parts, but in a couple of minutes, how how would you summarize some of the major challenges that face land back movements? Um, but then, likewise, you know, what are what are the opportunities and lessons and healings that they can also offer us? Well, I mean, specifically for us locally, the biggest challenge is industrial agriculture. You know, so many years ago, we had folks move in and dam up the rivers and, you know, drain Tule Lake, and it's now been turned into you know, just a a money-making machine basically for industrial agriculture. Um, And it's been going on for so long and it's been so profitable for the state that thinking outside of industrial agriculture, people just have a very hard time doing that. And they have also very much kind of swallowed the myths of industrial agriculture, that it feeds the world, that it's the only way to feed everybody in the world. And that's just basically not true. 
And so industrial agriculture and the capitalist commodification of our food has been the biggest uh, barrier uh, that we're having to overcome here. Uh, industrial agriculture and it, you know, all the various companies and families that are pretty much hoarding the resources there. They have so much power and so much authority within our political system and economic system that um, we're having to work outside of it. Like this is all a grassroots thing for us. And so we're having to make sure to build from the ground up and not rely on policies or lawmakers to do the right thing because it's not going to happen at least not soon enough to actually, you know, save us from climate change. And so um, we want folks to, to understand very much that, like I said, this is a matter of survival for us. And, you know, the challenges of industrial agriculture and having their money being so influential in policy and lawmaking, eventually, you know, we know that they're not going to stick around. And so we have to be ready for that exodus of them leaving this area because it's not going to be profitable any longer, especially when it comes to water. And so I think that that is the, that is the opportunity for healing, knowing and being ready for, for us to be able to move in and heal the land when industrial agriculture leaves. That's going to be just a, such a, I think it'll be such a community building opportunity and such a, an amazing um, and resilient show of mutual care, I think that we can be ready for. And so that's what we're working on now is we're working on overcoming those barriers, but also being ready for that healing that we know is coming. Um, and it, it's, it's a big task and it can be quite overwhelming, but we know it's coming and we know that, that the wheels are moving in that direction. And this has been just such a huge statewide movement and we're really happy to be a part of it. But we're also very keen and aware of the particular issues here in the Central Valley that might not affect the rest of California um, at the moment, but it will eventually. And so that interconnectedness and that mutuality and the relationships that we're building also outside of the Central Valley have been very, very healing for us as well to know that we're not alone. Because we, sometimes we can feel that way here in the Central Valley that, that um, you know, the Bay Area, the LA area, they're kind of very separated from us, but there has been a lot of healing now in reconnecting to all of our folks who are working towards food sovereignty and land back. You know, listening to you speak, I'm thinking about the ways in which land back isn't just about a particular past, right? It is, isn't as if uh, colonialism is something that happened, right? It's it's ongoing. Settler colonialism happens every day in big and small ways. But you're telling us to also think about the future in particular ways, and particularly indigenous futures. So the you know the myth of industrial agriculture, as you mentioned, is, is so entrenched, and it's something we're so familiar with, and we we feel that this, that's our only you know modus operandi. But could you help us as we you know kind of close out to? What is another possible future then? What would a land back future look like? What would a model that's not based on industrial agriculture look like? Well, I mean, would, there are plenty of places that we can already start looking at how they're doing this. So we just did uh, in January, we did a, a permaculture design certification course for our local indigenous folks. And so that's a 72 hour course in which you get certified and can then use that for, you know, economic development or for, um, you know, land development, however you want to use it. But, but part of that also is showing folks what can 
be done. And so, um, you know, if you want to look at a really great example is in Cuba, you know, they are obviously an island that's pretty disconnected from the rest of the world as far as getting resources in and out, right, both politically and geographically. And so when you look at what, what Cuba is doing right now, and what they have been doing in, um, in building up their food sovereignty efforts, it's inspiring. It is beautiful to see like how they, their, their web and their connection of all the different aspects of growing food and, and health and resilience and community. When you see the way that it's interconnected and that they're working together and being resilient within their very limited scope of resources, it's just amazing. And so, that's what we're trying to model here. And that's what we're really working towards. That's the vision that we're seeing is like really dreaming outside of capitalism. It's a hard thing to do because we've been colonized so much by capitalism, but dreaming outside of it, of, of a sharing economy, of a bartering economy, of an economy where, you know, where our work is our joy and it's not, you know, a chore, it doesn't kill us. Um, and so, you know, we're looking at, at um, food systems like, in, like they have in Cuba and their agroecology work there as a model for what we can do here, where we have, you know, local small gardens, farms, where people trade, where they communicate with each other, where they plan out their planting for the year and they're, um, they're able to barter and share with each other. Um, but also as well, like the skill sharing and the skill building around growing food and around all of the, the different um, systems that need to be in place in order for us to be sovereign in our, in our food systems, which then in turn um, very much influences our health system and our education system and our childcare system and um, all of these different ways that everything is just so connected. Um, and so we want folks to see that web of connection within their communities and within their families and within themselves, and that it can all move towards health and abundance in a way that 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 capitalism doesn't let us do that. Capitalism very much keeps us in a bubble and and limits our thinking. And so let's move outside of it and think big and really dream about what health and resilience looks like. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been such a pleasure having you join us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Calag Roots podcast. If you like what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get podcasts. And by the way, if you subscribe and rate this show, it'll help other people discover it. Now, some important acknowledgements. This podcast narration was written by me, Dr. Caroline Collins, postdoctoral fellow at UC Irvine, affiliated researcher at UC San Diego, and Calag Roots producer at the California Institute for Rural Studies. And it was edited by Lee Schmidt, associate storyteller and researcher at the California Institute for Rural Studies. The Well Interview series was made possible with support from the 11th Hour Project at the Schmidt Family Foundation. And finally, special thanks to our interviewee for this episode, Nicole Salaya, co-executive director at Food Link for Tulare County. Her deep commitment to this work helped us dig into this topic.